This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. We love to talk about space stuff and discoveries here on the show. As you know, I'm also a Star Wars fan. So when a story comes along that says astronomers have discovered a Tatooine-like planet, well, you just know we have to find out about that, right? Well, Dr. Matthew Stanning is a postdoctoral research associate at the Open University School of Physical Science, Sciences and joins us now. Good morning, Dr. Standing. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on the great intro. <laughs> How could we not when the headline is, you may have found some Tatooine-like planets? What does that mean? Uh, yeah, so um, essentially I've been searching for circumbinary planets. So those are planets that orbit around both stars of a binary star system. So instead of having one star like we have uh, at the sun, it has two stars and they'll have a double sunset just like you see in uh, Star Wars. And so was that what you thought of when you first like figured that out? You thought, oh, that's just like what they had in Star Wars. <laughs> Uh, so it was actually a, it was actually a part of a survey that we've had for a while. So um, of the five thousand four hundred exoplanets that we've found so far, so those are planets that orbit around a star that isn't the sun. Um, we've only found fifteen um, are orbiting around binary star systems. So this was part of a survey to see if we could find if we could find more. Okay, so how do you do that? What is that process like? Uh, so. The majority of them have been found, 14 out of the 15, have been found by what's known as the transit technique, um, which is where you just monitor the brightness of a star. And if uh, a planet is orbiting it and it happens to pass in between the star and our telescopes, then the brightness dips because it blocks some of the light. Uh, so then we can make a note of these dips and then find that there's a planet around them. But our technique uh, is slightly different. So we wanted to see if we could use what's known as the radial velocity technique uh, from the ground instead of using um, hundreds of multi-million dollar worth of space telescope. Right. Because it sounds like this is very successful. You said how many exoplanets have been found? Uh, over 5,400 in total. That's a lot. So how, did we, how do we then, Dr. Standing, find out more information about those planets? Uh, so there's um, various different ways. So one way is to uh, use different detection techniques. So um, I mentioned the transit technique and the radial velocity technique. So the transit is very good because it gives us um, the radius, the size of the planet, because we know how much light from the star it blocks. We can figure out how big the shadow is, essentially, um, where the radial velocity technique um, measures. Um, if you imagine a, a planet orbiting a star, the star pulls the planet holding it in place but the planet also pulls the star so the star wobbles and so the bigger the planet the more it wobbles and we can measure the planet's mass from that so different techniques give us different uh, characteristics of these planets it sounds like from all of this work that's being done though that we are making more progress than we ever have before is that would you say that's an assessment 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, definitely an exciting time to be in the field with uh, the launch of JWST and the upcoming European Space Agency PLATO mission. Um, I think uh, it's going to be uh, very interesting very soon with all of the new science coming out and new discoveries. That it's definitely going to take off. Really? Like, why do you think that? So, I mean, in circumbinary planets, uh, especially, so the majority I said were detected by transit missions like Kepler. Uh, Plato uh, is planned to do uh, a similar a similar mission to Kepler, where it's going to stare at this, uh, some spot, uh, patches of sky for a long period of time and check for these transits. And so we actually expect Plato to more than double the number of circumbinary planets found um, so far. Okay, well, that's amazing. So we know these are out there, though, but I guess the next question is how habitable are they? Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, it's uh, a question we get quite often, very good question. Um, I would imagine, yes. <laughs> uh, so it depends a lot. Um, habitability we define um, because we only have a sample size of one, right? We only know one planet that is uh, able to host life, and that's that's the Earth. Um, so we can we tend to compare everything to Earth, and every all life on Earth needs one thing, and that's liquid water. Um, so when we say that a planet exists in the habitable zone around a star, um, that just means that that's the region where water can exist in its liquid form on the surface. Um, but planets are difficult to detect because they're very small and very far away compared to the very bright star that's right next to them. Um, so it can be quite tricky. The Most of the ones we find tend to be those that have a larger signal because they're easier to find. So big planets sort of think Jupiter-sized right. gas giants very close to the stars. But if that one is there, then who knows what you would find nearby them, right? Exactly, yeah. So just because we find, say, one or two planets in the system doesn't mean that they aren't, there aren't more there that we haven't yet been able to detect. Um, they could be just too small for our current methods to be able to detect. We might need slightly bigger telescopes, slightly advanced instruments or different techniques. Well, this is fascinating stuff. So I guess you've really put this in people's minds now, right? You put it out and tell people we found a Tatooine-like planet. People have that immediate image in their mind, don't they? Yeah, it's uh, it's a powerful image, I think, that Luke's staring off into the sunset with the the, the music swelling in the background. It's, uh, it's nice to finally be able to announce uh, our discovery. That is so cool. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. History will be made in Florida today, where former President Donald Trump is expected to surrender on the first federal charges ever filed against a U.S. president, former or current. So, of course, that is where we find our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini, this morning. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Where are you? What's going on? 
So we are outside of the federal courthouse uh, in Miami, where for the last several hours it has been a bit of a media circus. But over the last, say, 30 minutes or so, we've seen a, a steady trickle of supporters of the former president uh, start to, to appear. Uh, they are chanting Trump. They are kind of trying to talk to anybody that they can, explaining uh, the case that they believe that this is nothing more than a political persecution uh, of their president. But for the moment, it's peaceful. Okay, that's good. So what is likely to happen today? What events are going to unfold here? So there will be a couple of different things happening. On the inside of the courtroom, Donald Trump will be uh, arraigned. He will have those 37 charges uh, read uh, before him that were in that really explosive indictment that came out uh, last week. He will be digitally fingerprinted. There may or may not be a mugshot taken. Uh, if there is, it won't be released uh, publicly. Uh, and at that point, he, you know, the, the rest of the process will continue and he'll eventually leave and head back to New Jersey. On the outside of the courtroom, uh, that's where things could potentially become dicey. Local law enforcement say that they are prepared for what could be 100, 1,000, 5,000, 50,000 people, depending on who shows up, who heeded that call from the former president to come out and protest. But, um, you know, I, I can be very honest when I say this. When we were in New York, every street was behind layers and layers of medical metal barricades. Uh, here we are outside of the courthouse. The only thing barricading the courthouse from the street is the media and a piece of police tape. There is very little visible security presence this morning. Okay, so obviously a close eye on that. So tell us a bit about this case, though, because I've been doing some reading on this, and this is very different from the previous indictment. Yeah, well, first of all, the previous indictment was on state charges, and that was linked to falsified business accounts uh, and the hush money scandal. This is a far more serious situation where the former president is facing federal charges linked uh, to the mishandling of classified documents. And should point out, some of those documents were so classified, Simi, that the, the classification of them itself was classified. And the indictment showed that there were boxes upon boxes of these documents linked to uh, sensitive national security issues and, 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 uh, and, and issues that would be dealt with amongst its uh, security allies, including Canada, kind of strewn about on the floor, in the bathroom, and in a ballroom in, a, in close proximity to uh, people that would be at this public club. And it stems from a long fight, a drawn-out fight, and ignored subpoenas from the government to get these documents back. Legal experts say at the end of the day, the indictment and the charges that Donald Trump are facing are a result of his own actions. Okay, and these are not the documents that he returned, right? These are the documents that they found even after some documents had been re returned. Yeah, pr yeah, precisely. So the charges that he's facing are not related to anything that were turned back and handed over to the National Archives. It is simply the boxes that he had fought against uh, handing back and, and retained. And I think, you know, what's interesting here is the reason there is so much evidence inside of that inside of that indictment is because one of his own lawyers was forced to turn on him. There was a crime fraud exception that was put in place and Evan Corcoran and his contemporaneous notes uh, had to be presented to the grand jury. So these were words taken by a lawyer from his own client uh, about, you know, actions pertaining to these documents and willful attempts to try and subvert a subpoena. Uh, and that's what makes this such a remarkable moment. It could be also the reason that Trump wasn't able to secure any local council in Florida ahead of this arraignment. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I was going to ask you, so does he not, and it's required, right, that he have local council? Yeah, it's required that somebody who is able to practice in Florida be with him. And, and one of his lawyers uh, that he has with him from his core D.C. team of the two that came down uh, does have uh, permissibility to, to, to practice in Florida. 
but he wasn't able to secure a law firm. We heard just a couple of days ago that he was still interviewing firms. We know they were interviewing firms yesterday, and then by this morning, they were unable to secure somebody, and it could simply be because his lawyer had to turn on him, and there is a realization here that there is risk associated with um, with defending the former president, and, and legal counsel and defense attorneys could find themselves trying to weigh whether or not their career might be put on the line if they take this case on. Okay, so this is supposed to happen noon West Coast time, 3 o'clock your time, Reggie. Then what's going to happen? What's allowed in the courtroom? What isn't allowed in the courtroom? Very little is allowed in the courtroom. We saw this morning a line of a couple of dozen journalists that were allowed in the room, but there is no transmitting devices that are allowed, no phones, no cameras, because it's a federal courtroom. So it won't be like New York. We won't see that perp walk of Trump leaving one door and going into another. We're going to solely have to rely on court sketches uh, and, and information that comes out from the reporters inside afterwards. So there will be about an hour's silence where we will have no idea what's happening during this arraignment process. And then, as I said, he takes off after this and immediately boards his plane to go back to a fundraiser because Trump is, as Trump does, monetizing off of something that could be politically and legally dangerous for him. Right. So we'll definitely probably be hearing more about this from the fundraiser, too, wouldn't we? Because like, I know the, pre- the former president will Ye- talk about this. Yeah, and, and it, this is what happened after New York's uh, arraignment as well. The former president went back to a uh, fundraising event, and it was carried by some of the right-wing networks, but he eventually spoke about this. Uh, there's a chance he will take his fundraiser tonight and push back on this. He sees himself as the victim of a political witch hunt, blaming this on the Department of Justice and on the Biden administration, uh, and his words are having an impact. There has been polling that comes out to show that the support underneath him is strengthening and is mm-hmm. growing, despite the fact that there is a real chance here that he faces conviction. Oh, it's so fascinating. Reggie, thank you. Good luck today. This is Mornings with Simi. It is not an exaggeration, I think, to say that at this point, Canada and its wildfire management is a topic all over the world right now. Part of the challenge with that is being able to predict what might happen with wildfires. And for that, of course, we need advanced research modeling. So let's talk about that work and what is being done about that. Dr. Gabriel Weiner joins us now, professor in the Department of Systems and Computer Engineering at Carleton University. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Good morning. Are we doing this kind of work, Dr. Weiner? Are we doing the modeling on wildfire management? Oh, yes. So when... When there are forest fires like right now, uh, the experts start working. The models are there, and they work hard to predict where they're going to go. Uh, these models have been around for a long time, and they become better and better every year. So all of the experts work steadily and quickly to, to predict where the fire will go. And yes, we do that. But do we need to do it better? Do we need to do more? Are we doing enough? Uh, so the models are advance every year we keep improving the models um we are doing pretty a pretty good job at, about that uh in our lab we're trying to uh, improve the quality of the results uh, but we study new methods for modeling and simulation for different techniques and and applications and in particular uh in the fire uh is, is a very interesting problem to study um the issue with fires is that um you need the government accreditation rubber stamp to use a model. Uh, they take years to become useful and approved by the government. Uh, we're, I think we're doing a really good job in Canada and uh, uh, all over the world. The models are really advanced and uh, uh, w- well-defined. 
so um, I believe we are uh, doing a good job, but uh, new work is you know, needed every time. We have new sensors, uh, satellites, uh, artificial intelligence that is helping the expert to uh, get the direction and intensity of the fire and help the population in general. Uh, the models have been advanced and we have new tools every year that we are ready to use. Okay, can you explain to me how this works then? So how can you predict what happens with a wildfire when there's so many variables, right? Like, is it a lightning strike? Is there a wind? What is the temperature that day? How, how do you do that? So the the basic uh, idea is that we put all of that information in a computer uh, using a mathematical model. It's a, it's a fairly complicated uh, uh, task. So you get uh, a description, a mathematical description of what what the fire is doing, and you try to copy that in a computer and reproduce the behavior in a virtual laboratory uh, that it's safe. So you can. Uh, do lots of experiments uh, in the computer and uh, try different scenarios and uh, use the weather data and satellite data and sensors and decide in which direction will it go. So what the models do is to try to predict this with a lot of precision and then you try to mix it with visualization tools to help the decision makers with maps and uh, 3D graphs uh, and this uh, you to predict will go and uh, evacuate when needed, uh, predict where the smoke will go, mix it with weather patterns, and then you have a very powerful tool to help the population. Right. So how quickly can it be deployed? So do you wait until a wildfire, you have report of a wildfire, and then you go, okay, let's figure out where this is going to go? Yes. So you need information uh, from the actual weather at the moment of the forest fire, and you need to know where it started to predict where it will go. But once you have that day's information, you put all of this information into the computer, you run simulations, and you decide where will it go. You run thousands of simulations, and a combination of all of these will give you a good prediction where the fire will go. And you need to continuously do the simulations again because the weather is changing. And uh, according to the weather patterns, you are going to modify what the results do. Okay, so you use all sorts of technology for this, right? Is this technology always being updated? Yes. So uh, in the so every, every time there's a new uh, technology, the top experts try to put them together into the forest fire uh, prediction techniques. So. Um, Imagine this year, so you have models that have been running for over 50 years, and these models have been modified over and over. Uh, so now you have very advanced things in which you have the model running, and then you take the uh, real-time information from satellites or infrared sensors, and you mix them with the simulation models when the simulation is running. Uh, so this improves the quality of the results a lot. Um, we advance every year in the... Uh, obtention of these results, and then uh, this has been evolving, as I said, for for years. So um, new techniques improve a lot. Now with the hype with artificial intelligence, there are machine learning models. Uh, so there are thousands of researchers all over the world trying to study new methods to improve the quality of the results generated by these forest fires models, because as you can imagine, these are 
artificial models in a computer, this is not real fire. So these are useful models. No model is perfect, but many of them are very useful. So with new techniques, they become more and more useful and more interesting to use by the uh, experts and the uh, first responders. Right, and we need them right now, don't we? Of course, yes. It's going to get worse. Uh, the the global uh, patterns of weather have changed a lot. Uh, the, the the forest fires are drier right now than years ago, uh, and it's it's going to get more complicated. Uh, we need to be prepared for the next one. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. No, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the good news is that B.C. could be about to get a break from dry, hot weather. A shift in the weather means that we could be getting some colder conditions with some rain starting today in the southern and central interior of the province. Now, the rain will definitely be welcome, but this could also mean wind. And that would be a huge challenge for firefighters that are tackling wildfires, especially across the southern and central interior which got us thinking about how incredibly challenging this whole situation is. Like, What's it like to be on the front lines fighting fires? Joining us now to talk more about that is Luke McLeod, a former Type 1 wildland fire ranger. Luke, thanks for joining us. Hey, Jimmy. Thank you very much for having me. What does it mean to be a fire ranger? Well, it's, uh, it starts with the love of the outdoors. Uh, you definitely spend a lot of time out there. Um, and, and really, it's... Uh, for me, it was it started as a uh, as just a summer job um, between between uh, university semesters and really turned into uh, an absolute passion and and something that I'm going to value for the rest of my life. That uh, that chapter of my life, especially. Okay, so when you when you're in those situations, Luke, can you describe to us like what do you know when you're sent in to fight a wildfire? What what kind of planning goes into that? So a lot of it starts uh, on the approach, and so uh, I'm actually a couple time zones east of where you are, and, and I'm, I'm praying for a little bit of rain for BC right now myself, uh, but I was in Ontario, and, and so the big thing in Ontario, relatively flat, and a lot of water sources, so when we're approaching, we're, we're in a helicopter, uh, circling around this fire, looking for, you know, potential escape routes if the wind direction was to change, uh, the water source by which we're going to set up our pump, and uh, and kind of finding a bearing towards the fire, how big the fire is, and and these sorts of things. I mean, in in British Columbia, um, the approach is much different. You've got a lot of terrain and altitude to worry about, uh, and and fire loves to run uphill very very quickly. So there's some major differences there, um, and it it really does turn into it could be a lot scarier of a situation in British Columbia, a lot faster. So a lot more planning has to go in from the air, uh, and ensuring that. First and foremost, safety of the firefighters um, is is paramount when you're making your approach, and you kind of work backwards from, you know, where do we want to drop in, uh, what does the weather look like, what does the weather forecast, th- these sorts of things, and then it uh, it all happens pretty quickly. The plan is set, and uh, and communication over radios um, is pretty constant, and that's kind of your eye in the sky is is giving you the the intel of of where you should be, where your safe spots are. And so communication becomes paramount as well. I was just thinking about that as you were talking because I thought it's such a confusing, probably feeling like a chaotic situation to be in the middle of all that. But at the same time, you have to really keep listening, don't you? Because you don't know what's happening and you have to have to, have to wait for somebody to tell you what might be happening elsewhere. Exactly. And, and likewise, if you're seeing something that, um, that seems a little off from what you've been told, 
uh, it's it's very important to, to speak up and to kind of run it up the chain of command to let to let some folks know, hey, I'm feeling a wind change, or you know, it's it's a, it's burning a little hotter than than um, than original, than we initially predicted. So um, it's it's just as much on on the boots on the ground as it is on the the folks in the sky, the pilots and uh, um, and the lookouts. So there's you know, it's it's information coming from a lot of different directions all at once. Uh, and, and a lot of this is funneling through an incident command team that's going to kind of process all this information and, and use kind of best practice and, uh, and predictors and, and these sorts of things to, to put together a plan and, and ultimately keep everybody safe and, and out of harm's way. And did you ever feel like it was dangerous? Did you ever feel the danger of what you were doing? I mean, the, luckily for, for myself in, in Ontario, in northern Ontario, where with so many lakes, I, I I had this kind of feeling that I was no more than a couple hundred yards from, from water at any point to run and jump and hide in if I ever needed to. Um, however, you know, there's, there'd be times when, when our, our crew would be out all day working on a fire and uh, we'd head back towards where we thought our camp was and it's now a big patch of black that's been burned and we, we lost all our belongings. So um, that, that to say, there, there definitely, you know, things can change on a dime. Personally, I never had any one experience where I thought, um, you know, I'm in imminent danger myself. Uh, and I, I, I'd like to think that's because of the, the standard operating procedures and, and best practices of, of, the, of the ministries that, uh, that put together these fire programs. In, in British Columbia, I'd only been there once to, to help out on a fire, and, uh, and it, was, it was a very well-oiled machine that, that we were running through. So I, I can honestly say at no point did I feel unsafe. Um, however, you know, you've You've really got a feel for the, the good people that, that have homes in the area of fires that, that aren't sure um, if the wind is going to change or if the fire is going to keep coming towards them like they've been told. And um, so there's a lot of unknown there, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. And so my, my heart would go out to, to the folks that, you know, can't pick up and move their house as much as I can pick up my tent and, and run right. if I needed to. So, Luke, though, given that you've been in, in these situations and certainly you feel that danger, you feel that the challenge of doing this, it must be frustrating for you as well when you see people being kind of sloppy with fire behavior. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's not a great idea, especially when with uh, the quick early melts we had this year. And, and I, I can only assume that's compounded out west um, where where we've lost our, our snow and and winter weather very quickly and, and it quickly turned to hot weather and and so responsible responsibility with with fires you start if you're camping um is is paramount absolutely okay so then what is your advice to people luke my advice if um very much the, trying to eliminate that fear of getting in trouble if you're in a situation where sure you've had a campfire and and all of a sudden you look up and, and the tree above you some embers got into there and, and something's starting to spread you know, you've got to make that call right away. Don't don't try to be uh, the hero. Don't try and cover it up. Don't try and take things into your own hands. Um, sometimes it's best to call in, uh, call in the authorities, and uh, and make sure you know it's it's taken care of properly. All right, Luke. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This is mornings with Simi. This may seem a little bit unusual, but this morning we're going to chat about Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, the author. I mean, he wrote stories that we are still telling in different versions all these years later. The Raven, The Telltale Heart, The Fall of the House of Usher, The Black Cat, oh, The Purloined Letter. That is a classic story. 
His death, though, more than 170 years ago, has always been shrouded in mystery, much like what he used to write. He was found outside an electoral polling station in Baltimore, found delirious. He'd been missing for a week, and he died before anyone could really found out, find out how he had gotten into that position. He was only 40 years old at the time. So it is a mystery that has continued to fascinate people all these years later. And now there is even a new theory about what might have happened to him. To learn more about that, we're joined by Mark Tvitzak, who's an author of A Mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. Mark, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Why does Poe fascinate you so much? Well, I've carried Poe through my, throughout my entire life, and I think he fascinates all of us. <laughs> the, the author of these, as you say, these wonderful stories that we all get when uh, we are in school and then throughout uh, upper education all the way through university and college. How can you not be fascinated with somebody who, who produced the telltale heart and the cask of Amontillado and the mask of the red death? So, and then you have this, 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 this mystery of his death. The, the, the fellow who created the modern detective story and the modern horror story dies under circumstances which are reflective of his two greatest literary achievements. He dies under circumstances which would not be out of place in one of his own horror stories. Then he leaves us with a mystery, not just a mystery, but a double-barreled mystery. Uh, we have the mystery of what killed him, and then we have the mystery of the missing days. That's the greatest literary stage exit of all time. <laughs> it really is. I under, it's almost as if a PR agent stepped in and said, you know, Eddie, the best thing for you would be to die at 40 under circumstances which are just like one of your stories. That is so and true. How, how did you go about even yes. how did you go about even trying to look into this or solve this? And we're talking 170 years ago. That's right. And 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 this, and and in some cases it can never definitively be solved. I I've been very clear about that right from the start. There was no autopsy and even if there had been one it would have been worthless because the 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 era of the modern autopsy did not come into being until the Civil War. That's when we got very good at cutting up bodies. So there was no autopsy, no death certificate. There's no surviving soft tissue that could be subjected to modern forensics. Um, there, the witnesses that do exist to pose death are unreliable or contradictory. In fact, some of them contradict themselves, most notably the attending physician who left behind three accounts of Poe's death, each one wildly different. He even goes so far as to change the time of death and Poe's last words. So you do have an element of this to say, you know, uh, you, you, you can't definitively prove this one way or the other, but I think you can come up with a, a compelling theory as to how he died, and you approach it as a detective. You, have, you treat every symptom, and by the way, we're up to about 26 theories as to how Poe died, and you treat each one as a suspect, and you see who do you always have back in the room as your person of interest? Who are your major accomplices in all of this? And then you do your, your groundwork like a detective. So I talk to medical historians, forensic pathologists, forensic archaeologists, an FBI agent, a detective, uh, post scholars, and you, you, you put each theory to the test. And along the way in this book, I, I, I somewhat um, disprove some of the existing theories or, or at least say it's unlikely he died of this, this or this and say this is the one that uh, I isolate as the 
prime suspect in all of this. Okay, what is the one that you identified as the prime suspect? Well, it's kind of out there. I, I, I you know, I don't want to ruin the book for people who are going to read it, but it's been written. I, I, I believe that he was surrounded his entire life by tuberculosis. And I believe tuberculosis is always in the room. It always seems to be there. And certainly the, uh, the, the, what we know of how he died does fit not only tuberculosis, but specifically tuberculosis meningitis. Um, so if I, if I had to say, uh, that, would be, that would be my theory. And then I would say the primary accomplices are poverty and alcohol, because alcohol is a problem for him. Not the problem we usually think it is. Poe was not perpetually drunk. He had long, long periods of sobriety, but he was probably allergic to alcohol. It took very little drink to make Poe roaring drunk. Uh, from college on, the record is clear. He did not savor a drink. He did not sip a drink. He would throw down the first one, and then it seemed like he'd been drinking for hours. And then it took a long time for him to recover from that. Like, it wasn't just a simple hangover for Poe. It took a couple of days to get over any bout of drinking. So periodically, alcohol is a problem for him, and it has a devastating effect on his system. Um, but he is not perpetually drunk. Remember, Poe only lived to be 40. And one of the things I love about uh, doing this book is that when people learned I was writing about Edgar Allan Poe, they would say to me in almost a beatific way, oh, I love Edgar Allan Poe. And then they would say, and I could almost move my lips with them, I've read everything he's written. And I would always, I wouldn't say it, but I'd always think, no, you haven't. <laughs> Poe's collected works in the early 1900s filled 17 volumes. And very, very little of it is what we think of as spooky stuff. He was a very careful, exacting, versatile writer. He was also athletic. We don't think of Poe as athletic. He had a sense of humor. We don't think of Poe as having a sense of humor. So another reason I wrote the book right. was to dispel the myths. But let me, though, ask you about one of the more unusual aspects of what you write about in your book, that it might have something to do with an election that was going on at that time when Poe died. That could explain the missing days. Um, Baltimore, there was an election going on. And Baltimore was a rough town. Baltimore's nickname was Mob Town. And even by, now if, if you had, if any eastern seaboard town that had a harbor would have had a very, very rough neighborhood. And, and you know, don't go to that part of town. So not only did, was Baltimore a pretty tough town by those standards, they would riot at the drop of a hat. And they took their rioting very seriously. When they rioted, they'd drive the mayor and the sheriff out of town, and they would burn down the houses of, of leading citizens, and it would take days to restore order. And during election time, people would get shanghaied, and they would be turned into repeat voters. These gangs of political thugs would, would kidnap people and make them vote. They, they would take them from polling place to polling place. And there was an election going on during this time. The, the, the practice became known as cooping. Because in between voting, they would be cooped. They would be kept in a coop or a pen or whatever you'd want to call it. And so the practice became known as cooping. And Baltimore had refined this to a, to a, a fine art. And uh, it's a very good explanation as for the missing days, as what happened to Poe before he died. It does not necessarily tell us how he died, what he died of. Because if he was very sick and he was kept under these circumstances, 
where it was cold. It was a very cold, wet, chilly October when Poe got stranded there. If uh, he was kept under those conditions in that kind of weather, it could have seriously undermined his health. So right. it's a very good explanation. Problem is, we don't have any witnesses. Nobody's right. ever stepped forward to say, I saw that. But as you point out, though, there's something about his death that has uh, all these years later, and we're talking about an author from the 18, you know, 30s and 40s, um, who is still so popular today, you could say that maybe his death has helped keep that popularity around. That's why I reversed the title, is the death and life. I reversed, first off, it, it was, with most biographies, you start where you're supposed to start when somebody is right. born. With Poe, it almost seems to be reversed. We always seem to start with his death. We always seem to start the discussion with his death. So that's one reason I reversed that title. But the other reason is Poe's going to escape the grave. Poe is going to emerge from the grave as the most popular American writer in the world, not just in his own country, but in the world. We market Poe. There are Poe plushies, action figures, tea tins, socks, ties, there are more marketing and merchandising items devoted to Edgar Allan Poe than any other author in the history of the planet, including Shakespeare. And, uh, and he's read. The thing about it is we so all true. get the telltale heart. We all get the raven. So we not only recognize Poe, his face, we recognize his stories. And that's not true of any other author. That is so true. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.